And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, the one who came to us in flesh and in who intercedes for us even at this moment. In his name we pray. Amen. To orient you to our theme this morning, I want to show you a very brief clip from something that happened the summer before I was born. Commander Jim Scott did a little experiment on the moon, allegedly. (laughs) What? This is the little science experiment he did. Jim, we copied a both solar wind and penetrometer drum in the ETB. Not quite yet. I haven't put the solar wind in yet, but I will shortly. I want to watch this. Okay. I have a, a good picture there. Be- I've got the... Beautiful picture, Dave. Well, in my left hand, I have a, a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, the feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here, and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? Five, five, that Mr. Galileo was correct in his findings. Now, some of you, yeah, some of you were thinking, clearly that was done in a soundstage in Sacramento. Because that never happens around here. It has to be faked. It was on strings and they dropped it, right? Why did that happen there and not happen here? Because on Earth there's this thing called atmosphere and there's air currents. And so that which has a different mass or a different weight is going to get to the ground at different rates. And yet the truth of the matter is gravitational fields as they are, they all have an equal pull on everything regardless of mass or weight. They fall at the same rate in conditions in which everything else is equal, not like air currents it is on the earth. And so if you want to kind of put it in a a deeply uh, 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 physical science kind of way, um, that which binds everything to itself has an equal interest on everything that is nearest to it. That which binds everything to itself has an equal interest, is of equal importance to everything that is near it. What in the world does that have to do with this moment or this sermon? That little physics experiment brought to you at no extra charge from the Sermon on the Mount. Because what is true of gravitational fields and what is true of everything in those gravitational fields is in some sense, metaphorically speaking, also true of something that God has for something in our world. And that is our words. The one who binds everything to himself finds everything that is near to him of equal importance, and that is words, the words that come out of us, every one of them. And the problem is, you and I don't believe that. And that is why we are listening 
to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most famous or infamous words Jesus ever spoke. And the topic that we're listening to today from the passage in Matthew 5, verses 30 through 37, is Jesus' warning label on words. And that warning label is pretty short. Handle with care. Because every word is of equal importance as surely as it is in a gravitational pull for all things near to it. And so in these four verses, we're going to hear three things that I think come from the command of Jesus and the person of Jesus. One, he's going to talk about a sinister sensibility, a comprehensive corrective, and an astonishing acceptance. Like the little alliteration there. Uh, Thank you. I work hard on those. A sinister sensibility, a comprehensive corrective, and astonishing acceptance. If you're able to stand, would you stand as we hear what he has to say about our words? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. Well, this is the enigmatic word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, you may be seated. Okay, maybe not. So by now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you're kind of starting to get into Jesus' rhythm on the way he puts forth his truth. He will, his truth, the truth, right? He starts with something that's familiar to everybody that's in earshot. He quotes a text from the law or from rabbinical teaching, and then he comes in underneath and surfaces the deeper principle that's at work, the heart of the matter that has gotten lost in the shuffle or has been encrusted with a lot of distorted messages across the history of teaching on this. And where he starts, he starts in a way that doesn't sound problematic at all. It's coming straight out of Leviticus 19.12. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. He's talking about oaths and vows and the rough and ready distinction apart from, uh, uh, between them in, in all of Scripture. An oath is what you made to another person. A vow is what you make to God. In both situations, you are out to attest to your integrity, your credibility. And so you made an oath. Or you made a vow. And those things are rampant in the Old Testament. Abraham makes oaths. Judges, they make oaths. Kings make oaths. The psalmist speaks widely about oaths. God himself, in Genesis 22, makes an oath to Abraham. To attest to his own veracity, as if he needed to, but he did it. And in moments like that, when you would utter an oath... It's out to establish trust and credibility. Because in that day, as in pretty much every day, trust is a hard thing to establish, it's an easy thing to lose, and it's a much harder thing to gain back. And so what you would do is that you would invoke words 
authority. Things that both people held in respect and reverence. You would invoke those authorities in order to attest to your integrity. Now, so far, that sounds like no problem. That doesn't sound very sinister. It's fine. Here's the thing, though. What's going on is what humans always do when it comes to laws. They find loopholes. They find ways to take a perfectly good instruction and guidance and find a way to distort it and twist it in a way that it becomes their tool to something rather insidious. So, for instance, if you want to retrofire yourself back to last Sunday when we're talking about divorce, and we talked about the law in Deuteronomy 24 when it came to solidifying a divorce, that one would have to go to the priesthood and draw up a certificate of divorce to make it a matter of public record, and so to ensure that husbands or that wives who are in a weaker position in that moment would not be subject to the wiles of men. The divorce certificate was out there. That protected people from the wiles of those seeking the divorce. And yet, as we heard last week, what was out to protect women had now been used to actually bring harm or to forget a wider context. That if you wanted to seek a divorce, you could just go to the priest and say, I'm ready to sign up on my certificate of divorce. And they would say, fine. But what would be lost in the shuffle was the greater context of what was in Genesis chapter 2 when it comes to the nature of marriage. That when that is formed, that there is a union that is greater than one might understand from just that change of addresses and that merging of financial accounts and the merging of things like that. Marriage is a one flesh thing. And so one might seek a divorce and be in honor of the letter of the law, but be totally blind to the spirit behind it. Namely, that divorce is a matter of last resort only under certain narrow conditions. So what had been a means to protect, to reduce harm, now was becoming a handmaiden to harm. Jesus is saying in this passage that the same thing is at work In the practice of oath making and oath taking. Why? How so? You hear him rattle off several authorities that were used to speak an oath, to invoke authority, and to assert integrity. So you heard him say, swearing by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, or to swear by your head. All of those things... Anybody you made an oath with, oath with, like that, <clears throat> anybody you make an oath with in that circumstance would say, I have reverence for that. You have reverence for that. Clearly, you are a person where your word is your bond because you're invoking authority. Those words, each one of them had in common. They were what the Hebrew term was, was kinuyim, loosely translated as the word names. And they were all names that were associated with God but which were not an explicit invocation of God's name. You invoke all those words and you give the impression of your intensity, of your integrity, of your credibility. But when you use those words instead of God's name, you know what you're doing? You're kind of saying, you know, I'm not really ultimately accountable. I didn't bring up God's name. I brought up Jerusalem or heaven and earth, but... You know, I didn't bring him up. So it's really kind of the equivalent of saying something to their face with your hands behind your back and your fingers crossed. Oh yeah, I'll do it. I'm on that. 
Oh, yes, totally true. Yes, sure, I'll do that. Jesus is saying it doesn't wash. That that which had ordinarily been used to reduce the possibility of deception were now being used as a handmaiden to it. Oaths were out to attest to your credibility. But now the practice had come into play where you would use those words to speak in such a way to throw people off the hunt and to give the impression that you were good when in fact you were just trying to resort and protect yourself from ultimately being accountable to God. When you're a kid and you're in school and they teach you about fire safety and they say, Lord forbid you are ever in your house and it is on fire. They say, if you're behind a door and you don't know if there is fire on the other side of the door, one thing you don't do is ever touch the doorknob. Because the doorknob is metal and it's the greatest conductor of heat. And if you touch the doorknob, ouch, you will burn yourself. So what do you do? You touch the least warm things. You touch the, the wall, the, the door. You feel underneath the, the door. Don't touch the doorknob. That'll burn you. Israel, at that time, when it came to oath making, they were trying to do everything they could to avoid touching the doorknob of God's ultimate accountability. Looking for a way to say something that they thought was true or they wanted you to believe was true or to make a promise that they had no intention of keeping but to avoid ultimate accountability. And Jesus says, that doesn't work. Your oath taking is your attempt to put a little distance between your words and God's ultimate accountability. It doesn't wash. You can't do that. And Therefore, he's saying, be done with oaths. Stop it. Cease and desist now. And you hear all that and you go, wow, that's interesting. Who cares? I mean, are you saying, pastor, that now I have a really good reason to never have to do jury duty again? Yes. Awesome. Jesus, you came through. No, no, I'm not saying that. In fact, Uh, As in North Carolina, as in my my state of Texas, my home state of Texas, um, the law has provision for those of you that think that this text means you don't have to take any more oaths of office or oaths of testimony. Um, If you don't have a problem with that, then when you come before the court of law in North Carolina, you have to say, I do appeal to God as witness of the truth and avenger of falsehood, as I shall answer the same at the great day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be known. Boy, you North Carolinians put teeth in your oaths. That's That's awesome. But if you have a problem with oaths because of what Jesus is saying here, all you got to say is take God out of it, and you can just say, I affirm that my testimony is true. And North Carolina say, that's cool. Jesus is not primarily interested, though, with legal or official settings in which two people might speak a version of truth or come to an account on what an agreement would be between the two of you. And the reason I say that is because how he ends this passage is not about legal contracts. He says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Let what you simply say be yes or no, period. His concern, his focus is much broader. You know how broad? This broad. So broad, he's talking about every single word that comes out of your mouth. Really? His concern is that every word matters. God has an equal interest in every single thing you say in the same way that that gravitational field on the moon has an, if you will, equal interest on a feather and on a hammer. 
So God, who is the one who binds us all together, has an equal interest and assigns equal importance to every single word you and I speak, no matter whether we assign a different weight to it or not. And the problem is, you and I don't believe that. Gosh, if you had put a recorder um, on, around my neck all week, how, how many words would I have spoken that had no consideration of what God has said? I, I, I shudder to think. Look, it's so rampant. I, it, I don't know if it's more common or just more widely reported, but is it not seem to be the case that every week there is a new report of plagiarism, borrowing somebody else's work and passing it off as your own, or of perjury, even taking an oath and then lying through your teeth to protect yourself, or in breach of contract for all sorts of things. It happens every week. People do it every day. But even if you and I are not involved in in, uh, settling contracts, or maybe you and I are not in the news, um, the more mundane expressions of that are are sort of captured in a a lovely little comment from a guy named A.J. Jacobs. Several years ago, um, he decided that he would, for a year, live in this little um, experience phenomenon called radical honesty, in which he would only say what was on his mind. He would speak only the truth, which makes me think, he probably got slapped more times than you could imagine. At one time in my, in my, my wife's life, she had an email address that we called uh, sounded better in my head at yahoo.com. <clears throat> I think that's funny too. Um, AJ Jacobs decided that whatever was in his head, he was going to say. And, and he wrote a book about it called Radical Honesty, about his experience for that whole year. And he expresses early in the book, I haven't read it, I just read um, excerpts from it. He expresses what motivated him to do it. He says, I have a lying problem. And mine aren't big lies. They're, they, aren't like lie, they aren't lies like, uh, I cannot recall that crucial meeting from two months ago, Senator. Um, mine are little lies, white lies, half-truths, the kind we all tell. But I tell dozens of them every day. Oh, yes, let's definitely get together soon. Oh, I'd love to, but I have a touch of the stomach flu. Uh, No, we can't buy a toy today. The toy store is closed. (laughs) It's bad. Maybe a couple of weeks of truth immersion therapy would do me good. In our family's life, um, the way we got around um, uh, running towards the ice cream truck is that we told the children that whenever you heard the ice cream truck music, that meant that they were out of ice cream. They're all going to be like, what? (laughs) His problem is our problem. And I know that we can laugh about it, and we probably should. But here's the problem, folks, and here's the reality. But here's the sober reality of it. How many times you make promises that you have absolutely no intention of keeping, but you say it anyway? How many times you talk stuff that makes you look great, but you know is a misrepresentation of the truth? How many times you and I step in it and then do whatever we can to speak of it in such a way to sort of minimize what's happened? How many times we go there? Hide the truth, conceal the truth, leave it a, a particular impression of the truth. It's our problem. It's A.J. Jacobs' problem. It's our problem. It's everybody's problem. Every word matters to him, he's saying. Now, a little caveat. Um, this is not Jesus saying, 
we all need to have this unqualified, um, totally constant transparency at every single moment of instance. Like if you walked in the gallery today and the greeter said, how are you? You were not obliged to say, well, you know what? I've kind of lost all my faith in humanity and I was about to run somebody off the road. I was so mad. You don't like, you don't have to be necessarily that honest in that moment. And the person looks back at you and says, oh, well, that's nice. I was going camping. Um, you know, <clears throat> there are moments in which it is appropriate to speak truth at certain times. The, the, who you're speaking with at that moment and whatever that moment is kind of has a bearing on the type of truth that you might speak in that moment. And that's why I, I really encourage you to go onto the, the, web, the website this week on this sermon's um, resource pages. There's a, a wonderful essay by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book on ethics about what does it mean to tell the truth. It's nuanced. It's helpful. It's appropriate. And so Jesus is talking about speaking truth here. And the reason he says this is because he's pushing back yours and my sinister sensibility to try to throw people off the hunt, to mislead them in certain ways, or to cast ourselves in a certain light. And that he calls sinister. And therefore, what he has for us, a solution for us, is not just do better. He offers for us a comprehensive corrective. He's already talked about a sinister sensibility. The solution to that is a comprehensive corrective. And that I get from what he says in the last verse. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. And then he says, because anything other than that comes from evil. In some translations, it's translated a little differently, and it might have been Jesus being purposely ambiguous to make us go, oh, what do I mean by that? But in some translations, it's anything else comes from the evil one. That the one who is the adversary above all adversaries would like to incite us into speaking something other than truth when the moment calls for truth. And so in that Last word, anything else comes from evil. Jesus is picking up words and removing them from the domain of just communication and dropping them squarely in the domain of morality. That what you speak has moral content. That Jesus is out to to change our minds and help us remember that there are not two kinds of words. The kind of word where we might invoke, God is my witness. Scarlet and any other word that I don't invoke God's name are. There's not two kinds of words. There's only one. That every single word is an expression of our understanding of everything that God has said. There's only one kind of word and is the word that takes into consideration everything God has said. St. Jerome One of the early church fathers, he said this about words. He says, evangelical truth does not admit an oath since every word of a believer is considered an oath. That anything that we might say is meant to have a built-in sense of integrity because we live before a God with whom we have to do. Anything we might say has to take into consideration everything that he has said. And that is because every word is an expression of our worship. Every word is an expression of our worship. If worship, maybe you never thought about what worship is. Well, worship is I sing. Mm, yes, well, worship is I pray. Mm, yes, well, worship is I sit still when I'm listening. Yes, but it actually has something else. Worship is what we do when we express our sense of God's worth. 
That's worship. Everybody worships. We all worship something, right, Bob Dylan? Everybody worships something. And whatever we worship, we express our sense of its worth in some way. Worship is expressing our worth of God. If therefore, if, if worship is an expression of God's worth, then every word we speak is an expression of our worship. Look, you've been in here for 35 minutes, and you have already prayed and sung and spoken words that maybe you don't speak very often outside these words, but of these walls, but every one of those words was in some sense ordered toward the worship of God. Jesus is saying, if you say that in here, why do you think the situation changes when you leave the parking lot? Every word is an expression of our worship. And the problem with oath-taking in that day was that people were trying to separate their words from their accountability and their worship of God, and Jesus is out to reunite them. To help us to see that they go together and they can never grow asunder. What does that mean for us? What would it begin to look like for you and I to think that every word we speak is an expression of our worship? It would mean, I guess, to begin with, giving greater thought and care to everything that we say. It would mean we don't make flippant utterances. We don't make promises that we have no interest in keeping. We take into consideration everything that God has said in order to frame up and tee up or maybe even withhold what we might say in the moment. Because if we take into consideration everything God has said, we know that he not only says speak truth, and surely Jesus is focusing on that thing here, but as Paul says, when it comes to speaking truth, we have to speak the truth in love. Well, now that changes things a little. When you speak the truth in love, sometimes you have to think about who is it that I'm speaking to, what is the moment that I find myself in, and in that case, sometimes it's respectful and responsible and necessary for you to be quiet. Because sometimes the words that you want to say are not the words that you might say are full of love. Even if they are true. Jesus is saying, think of himself as the one who spoke only words that God had given him and therefore any of his words were an expression of his worship. Period. Oh man, really? Yes, really. Okay, fantastic. My problem is, I don't think of it that way very often. I can be too angry with my words. I can be too short with my words. I can be too flippant with my words. I can make promises that I know in the back of my head. There's no way I'm going to do that. But I'm told them anyway. Why do I do that? This comprehensive corrective of reuniting our words with our worship, that's Jesus' solution. And we think, oh, that sounds so great and yet so impossible. And that's why the last thing that Jesus has for us is not just a command. Jesus in this passage has more for us than just a command. And you know what's true? Jesus always has more for us than just a command. In everything he says, though it is a command, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. But in everything, every command he says, he always has himself there too. You don't want anybody saying you've got to reunite your words with your worship other than Jesus. Why? That gets me to the last thing I got to say to you. Because I think he's saying it to himself. Saying it to us. He offers us command, but he offers us himself. And therefore, when it comes to reuniting our words 
with our worship, that depends on something that we have to believe. Otherwise, we will not worship God with our words. And therefore, to us, for us to get what we need, we have to ask ourselves, why do we lie? Why do we stretch the truth? Why do we tell fish stories about ourselves to make us look a certain way in people's eyes? Why do we not say the thing that needs to be said to somebody in the moment? Why do we do that? Why do we go there? Kid playing baseball, backyard, pickup game, hits it, right field, through the neighbor's window crash neighbor walks out kind of a gruff dude walks forward looks at the kid with the bat and says who did that kid says i don't know do what my window's broken i didn't do it what's with the bat oh the bat oh man that's for stranger danger you remember what's the kid doing in that moment He's out to protect something. He's out to protect his ability to play ball in the backyard. He's out to protect himself from whatever kind of, I don't know, shall we say, punishment he might get either from the neighbor or from mom. He's out to protect something. He's out to gain his ability to keep everything that he already has in place. So he tells a flat out lie. But you know what? Whatever kids do, we all do better. We just learn to do it better. And with more nuance and more justification. You step in it big. And you know that there is great loss. If that word gets out. What will you do? You will speak of it in such a way. As to reduce or minimize. Any of the possibility of the greatest loss imaginable. If the whole truth got out. You'll do that. Why? Because you're out to protect something. You have to protect your reputation. You have to protect what it is you do. You have to protect the routine you're in, the normalcy that you've got. And you'll offer words that are misleading. Your yes will not be yes. Your no will not be no because you're out to gain something. One other scenario. You know somebody that is on a path headed of dark. They're on a very dark path. And you have some kind of influence with them and they kind of have trust for you. And you know you could say something in that moment that might check the trajectory that they're on. And you don't because you say, I don't want to hurt them. And you're lying to yourself in that moment because it's not really that you don't want to hurt them. You just don't want to feel what you might feel if they blow back at you if you speak the truth and love to them in that moment. What are you out to do? You're out to protect something. You're out to keep something. You're out to gain something. You know what? You're In every one of those scenarios, whether you're the kid with the bat or you stepped in it yourself or there's somebody else on a dark path that you could speak into, there's one thing that you're after in that moment, no matter how old you are or what situation you find yourself in, you're out for a kind of acceptance. You're out to feel okay with what you have or how you're thought of, you're out to protect the one thing that is most important to you, your reputation. You're out to gain acceptance. And if you want to put the idea of acceptance sort of in a biblical framework, it's the word righteousness. Kind of a right standing. Not just that you're pure or perfect, that you give off the code of the goody two-shoes thing, but that you're okay in the eyes of the people that you're before. You're out to secure your own acceptance, your own righteousness. You want that. 
You want that so badly, you'll speak in such a way. I'll speak in such a way as to give you a particular impression. Even though it's not the truth. Because that's what I want. A.J. Jacobs, he made it really clear. Why did he do it? What kind of words would he say? Um, yes, let's definitely get together. I'd love to. I'd love to, but I have a touch of the stomach flu. No, we can't buy a toy today. The toy store is closed. What's he out to? He's afraid of disappointing people. Why is he afraid of disappointing people? Because he doesn't want to feel like he's lost something between them or he's lost something in himself. And therefore, he will seek that acceptance that righteousness through any number of tales he might weave to his own advantage. And you and I both do it. If that's the problem, if acceptance is the deal, then what's our hope? Our only hope is to believe that we have an acceptance, an acceptance of a certain kind and of a certain value to us that we no longer feel compelled to seek somebody else's acceptance through telling them something that's misleading. Let me say that again. If the only way I will not seek my acceptance and righteousness from somebody else through the misleading things that I say, if, that's, if the only way I can do that is to believe that I have an acceptance that's deeper and wider and more beautiful than that, then I need to find that kind of acceptance. You know where I'm going with this. There is an acceptance that we might have, that we might deeply believe, that when we hold it and we get it and we grasp it, it will bring us to tears. And that is the acceptance that comes through faith in the one who lived, who died, who rose, who never tore asunder his words from his worship, who, of whom he was spoken, of the promises spoken of him, he made good on them, of the promises he spoke himself, he made good on them, and the promise he made to us, was that he would come and ransom us. That by his own blood, he would pay a price that we couldn't pay to live a life we couldn't live. So that even when our eyes close in death, our eyes will open again on the other side of it. That is the promise he made, and it is a promise he kept, and it is a promise he showed forth in the nail scars in his hands and his feet and the things that we're going to give great joy and bellowing song to in a couple weeks on Easter. In what he did, there is an acceptance that is so deep and so wide that you and I, when we believe it, it will change the way we think of our words. What is that acceptance like? Austin Cleon is an author in Austin, ha, who is an author, he's a, he's a writer, he's, a, he's an artist, and he wrote a book that this last month called uh, Keep Going. It's a wonderful little um, book on how to uh, rekindle your creativity. I heartily recommend it to you. But early in the book, he, he tells the story of a video game designer named Peter Chan out in California. And Peter, when he was young, um, laying the groundwork for what he would later do as a way of vocation, he would just start drawing stuff on paper. He would just draw dragons and brigands and castles and things like that, and he would just draw them. And when he, was, he, just, when he, when he, when he did something, and then he looked at it and he go, oh, it's disgusting, he would take the paper and crumple it all up and throw it in the trash can with great frustration and almost like, why am I even doing this? I can't, I can't draw. And just throw it all in the trash can. And one day his father saw what he was doing, and uh, he says, Peter, 
You know, if, um, if you take those crumpled up pieces of paper and you flatten them all out and then put them in the trash can, uh, you'll be able to put more trash in the trash can. And, and Peter went, fine. And so anytime he, you know, did something he hated and hated himself because he thought he did that, he laid it flat in the trash can. A lot of years later, after Peter's dad died, he was going through some of his father's stuff. And he found in his files a very thick file folder with one word on the label, and it was the word Peter. And he opens up the file folder and finds every one of those thrown away drawings in the file. That's acceptance. But whatever you think your work is, that is nothing, the kinds of stuff that makes you think, I'm nothing, there is a kind of acceptance from one who is your father, who delights even in what you find the most distressing. And he has a file. And in that is love. How does that kind of acceptance come? It sounds like it's just a story. That's a, a true story in California, but there's the truest story in who Jesus is. This God so loves you before Jesus dies for you that he sends Jesus to die for you. And in that is your acceptance. And when we believe that, beloved and welcome guests, you know what happens? You no longer feel the compulsion to misrepresent yourself for your own advantage. You no longer got to talk smack at school because you think that's the only way that anybody will ever like you. You know what? Maybe they won't. But when you believe you have an acceptance that is deeper and wider and more beautiful than even everybody loving you at school or at work or in your, li- in your neighborhood, you won't have to give this false impression of everybody. You won't have to Instagram your life. When you believe about this acceptance, you will not have to pretend or conceal the fact that you're weak. You will not hesitate to confess. You will own who you are and not be afraid of being labeled a fraud because we all are. And God knows it and loves us anyway. When you believe that that acceptance is true, when you make a huge mistake of great cost to yourself or to other people that you love, you will not make it worse by trying to conceal what you did You will just take it, and though it may cost you, the cost will be greater to sit on the truth forever. And when then there is something between two people who love each other, and you feel perhaps the inclination not to say it, because you don't want the unsettled feelings of what they might say in return, if you believe that this acceptance in Jesus is true, then perhaps you will have the courage to speak the truth in love even if it's a painful thing. This is our acceptance in him. And we've been saying it from the very beginning of this worship service and from the very beginning of this truth and the very beginning of this church and the very beginning of the cross. It's the only truth I got to share with you. But when you believe it, it changes everything you say about your words. Lucy Shaw is a poet. And she wrote a poem called Take These Words. And what she says is true of poets, I think could be applied 
to anyone who might speak. And this she says early in the poem. To be a poet, you must write more than you know, hoping it to be true, that the words will have a life beyond the moment, taking the shape of their meaning like rain, filling a bowl, drops gathering into a fullness that is wholly fresh and drinkable. In other words, words that give life. Words that sustain. Words that ring true. Words that you can see the bottom to. It is by his acceptance that he might reunite our words with our worship and push back against the sensibility that is both sinister and natural. For that we shall pray now. Would you pray with me? So, Father, would you do your work with us now, as frightening as it may be to consider the high mark and the high bar of the goodness to which you call us, and yet not not ever without holding our hand in it and not ever without reminding us of your great love that compels us? Father, help us to take good stock of what we say. Help us to take even greater stock, though, of what you have said so that what comes from our mouth might be dripping with what comes from yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.